0: read together chapter 7 of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have descent from them receives tithes from Abraham. And blessed is him who had the promises. I'm sorry. He receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather, one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a, ch- a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses has said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for... The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantee, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above heavens. He has no need, like those uh, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people which he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I hope as we read that, you felt how jam-packed it is with deep thoughts. Almost overwhelmingly so, right? You, you feel almost washed over by these concepts of eternity and perfection and righteousness and a, a, no need for sacrifices and, and this washing over of us, almost like you got hit by a fire hose by reading chapter 7. I wanted you to hear that up front, to feel that up front, so you would grasp why we're going to go slow, so you would also take your time in understanding this imagery of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, three verses, by the way, in Genesis 14, and Jesus. This comparison, uh, this complement Typology here that the author of Hebrews is bringing out for us. The author of Hebrews here is giving what we would call an expositional sermon. It's what this is. He has taken a text from the Old Testament and a character from the Old Testament and he's going, I'm going to explain this to you in light of who Jesus is. And because he's so consumed with you seeing Christ, It's like drinking from a water hose, from a fire hose. It's been turned on and you've been blasted against the wall. At least if you're like me, that's how this feels. Read straight through it and you go, what? I need to read it again. And then you read straight through it again and you go, I need to read it again. And then you read straight through it again and you go, okay, I need to read the first two verses. And then breathe. And then read the next two verses. and And then breathe. And then breathe and breathe some more, go have lunch, come back, read the next two verses. And this is, is what we're going to do now together. So let's dive right in. Melchizedek here in verse uh, in chapter 7, verse 1. He, we brought this out when we we took a little break from Hebrews back in chapter 4 to talk about the the imagery that was going to be used. And if you remember, we talked about Genesis 14. We went back and we looked at it, and we saw... Who Melchizedek was, but just for those of you who didn't, who weren't here, who didn't uh, hear it, the Melchizedek is a random priest that shows up out of nowhere in the Old Testament, and he's priest of God Most High, El Elion, which means God of the Upper Room. That's important because we meet Jesus as God in the Upper Room when He breaks bread and uh, gives wine to His uh, disciples administering communion, saying, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, in the upper room in the New Testament. That is not an accident. He is God of the upper room. He is God who is saving. He is the God of salvation. Jesus Christ stands before us, God of all, Lord over all things, and the great high priest. So, Abraham just... To catch you up on the story, Abraham goes to Sodom to rescue Lot. And he saves Lot from uh, multiple kings. He and his 300 fighting men go and fight against uh, these five other kings. Their names are weird. The only one that I can actually say without stumbling is Cheddar Lummer. Cheddar Lummer. That's it. Cheddar Lummer. I say it because it sounds like cheese. So it's easy to remember him, but they all war against Abraham. Abraham slaughters them, wipes them out, and takes his his nephew and frees the people who have been enslaved by these five kings. And he comes back, and the king of Sodom comes out and says, Give me the men. You take whatever else you want. And Abraham goes, I'm not taking anything from you. I don't want anything from you. I'm just going to keep my men, and I'm going to set free these captives, and they'll be with me, and you, you go your way. You go your way. And when he does that, a man named Melchizedek shows up. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, we read in this passage, and we talked about it before, his name literally means righteous king. That's Melchizedek. Righteous king. Melchizedek, king, Zedek. Righteous. Righteous king of Salem, or Shalom, which is what you would hear it pronounced, um, which means peace. So he's the righteous king, the king of peace. Sounds an awful lot like another guy we know several thousand years later named Jesus, who comes as the righteous king, the king of peace. And he comes before Abraham, and he's got this bread and wine. He breaks the bread and gives it to Abraham, administers the wine to Abraham, and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything off the top, right away. Just gives him a tenth of everything. Then Melchizedek blesses Abraham and then disappears. You never see him again. That's the story. You got it? If you don't have it, I can repeat it. We got it. Okay, everybody's got it. Alright, so Melchizedek, the king of of righteousness, brings Abraham communion. This is important. Abraham, so here in verse 1, for Melchizedek, king of Salem, the king of peace, uh, priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, priest of the God of the upper room, meets Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Pause there. Abraham was victorious. But he wasn't just victorious. He slaughtered those kings. He went to war and won. And they were wiped out. Five kings. Five small armies. Five kings. Abraham, one man with a smaller army, presumably smaller army, wipes out five kings. That's. Incredible. Don't let that pass you by. That the man of God who does the work and the will of God will will be provided for by God. The man of God who is doing the work and the will of God will be taken care of by God. Abraham wins, and it is said that he wins by the hand of the Most High God. God has given him this victory. Slaughter the enemy slaughtered the man of God who obeys the word of God who follows after God he will be provided for and taken care of by God and then it goes on and says Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and Melchizedek blessed him God blesses this man who has slaughtered kings now ethically you need to wrestle with the idea that war is not always wicked This is a great thing for you to wrestle with, especially in our day and age, when it seems like everybody thinks that war is always evil. But in truth, war is not always evil. There is a just time and a just reason for war. And we could spend an entire sermon on this one fact, that Abraham, returning from war, is blessed by God Most High. Abraham, in returning from war, is blessed by God Most High. I just want to throw that nugget into your brain as something to think about. War is not always a wicked thing. Indeed, there are times when you must go to war for the sake of what is right, for the sake of what is good. Now, he says, He blessed him, and to Abraham, verse 2, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now I've told you in the past that we're not going to stop and do sermons on giving here unless we run across it in the text. Well, here it is. This is it. Abraham apportioned to Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. Now, um, the New Testament does not teach that you should give a straight ten percent tithe. It doesn't. The Old Testament doesn't teach that either. It doesn't. It teaches that you should give 33% of your money to government, to priests, to worship, and 10% to the storehouse. Now, do with that what you will. 10% is a great place to start at giving. If you don't give... 10% is a great place to start. Evidently, that's where Abraham started. Started giving at 10%. Melchizedek shows up after God has blessed Abraham. Melchizedek shows up and off the top, Abraham hands him 10% of everything. Says, here, take it. Surrenders it. Gives it into God's hand. This is biblical giving. That you are giving things away to God. You're not demanding that he use them the way that you want. You are handing them to him off the top. Handing it directly to him. Saying, do with it what you will. Give. So Christian, it's really simple. You ought to be giving. And a great place to start at giving is 10%. A great place to start at giving is 10%. You can give here. You can give to missions organizations. I know, I know other pastors that listen to this might get mad at me for saying this. You can give to missions organizations. You can give to... Uh, other people's needs, you can meet needs and count it as giving this doesn't matter it's, there's not there's not a rule. this is a way of life for us open-handed living we give and ten percent of your income is a great place to start, but it's not where you stop it's not where you stop and I can guarantee that if you will learn open-handed living where you can live. Giving to where you see a need, I guarantee that you will feel better, that you will be better, that you will know Christ more. Open-handed living is an act of trust in the Messiah, right? 10% is a great place to start. Now, if you want to know more about giving, we have two incredible books on the back shelf, on the back table, one is The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, and one is Money, Possessions, in Eternity by Randy Alcorn. Money, Possessions, in Eternity is that big. Treasure Principle is that big. We have three copies of The Treasure Principle, two copies of Money, Possessions, in Eternity. If you want a deep dive, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. You want a short, easy book to help you understand giving, Treasure Principle. That's all I have to say about it. Good? Let's go. So he gives him tenth of everything to... Um, to Melchizedek. Abraham, after having this victory, goes to give... Melchizedek shows up, blesses him, and Abraham hands him a tenth of everything. This righteous king of peace, hands him, he hands him a tenth of everything. And why? Why does he hand him this? Because he recognizes that this is the priest of God Most High. This is the priest of God Most High. This is where God is moving. So he wants to invest in the kingdom of peace. Wants to invest in the kingdom of peace, the temple of God, the worship of the Savior. So he hands him, hands it to him. No strings attached, just here. Gives it to him. He is, this is verse 2b, he is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here in verse 2 through verse 3, we see him describe this guy in Genesis 14. Okay, so get this. If you're not blown away by the fact that this is insane, you should be. So, think about this. He's the king of righteousness, which means he's the king of all that is good. That's his name. King of all that is good, all that is just, all that is righteous. He's the king of justice. Righteousness and justice are the same word. He's the king of justice. Abraham has just slaughtered a bunch of kings. The king of justice blesses it. He is the king of what is just and good. So he's not confined by what is just and good. He is king of it. He's not subdued by a law. He is the king of the law. He's not under the law. He is above it. He determines it. Remember Genesis chapter 1, how God creates things, how he determines what's good. He speaks it into existence, then he sees it's good, and he says it's good, and it is good. He sees it's good, and he says it's good, and it's good. If you read through the Old Testament, every time man tries to take charge, every time man tries to take over, we see something, we declare it's good, and it's evil. Think about the Judges in particular. There's no other book where this is more uh, palpable and visible than in Judges, and probably no other character than Samson, who sees a woman who is a prostitute, who's a Philistine. He sees it's good, and it says, and she was good in his eyes, and he said she was good. Direct contradiction. When we begin to try and determine what is good, Everything starts to fall apart because God determines what is good. He is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of what is just and good and right. So here we see this beautiful picture. He is the king of righteousness. He is also the king of peace. He's high priest. He derives his authority from God. He's the king of righteousness, king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. In other words, his justice brings peace. The justice and righteousness of God brings peace. I've often been been asked that when you get to heaven, are you going to be sad because other people have not gotten there? Other people have not gotten there. And And I have to respond by quoting that psalm, God does not delight in the death of the wicked then I need to remind them that when you see the righteous king exercise his justice, all that remains is peace. All that remains is peace. This is why heaven is a place of peace. This is why heaven is perfect. This is why it's peace. Because the righteous king has exercised justice. And he exercised justice in a way that we weren't expecting. He exercised justice in the cross of Jesus Christ. We were expecting him to exercise justice by landing on the earth and punishing everybody who's wicked. But Jesus came down in the form of a baby and walked a perfect life and lived perfectly on your behalf, bearing your sin and shame, carrying that sin and shame to a cross to die so that you would live. And the mercy of God met the justice of God in the cross. They intersect at Jesus. And we get mercy because He displays His justice by pouring out wrath and condemnation on Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that is the righteous king who brings peace. Then in verse 3 it says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues as priest forever. The high priesthood has always been and will always be in this priest. In Melchizedek, in Jesus, the high priesthood has always been and will always be this priest. Melchizedek has no ending and no beginning. He is eternal in his character in the Bible. And that's on purpose because he's pointing you to see Jesus, the true righteous king of peace, who is eternal. So listen, we are sinners who run to refuge. We run to Jesus, our city of refuge. And as long as the high priest lives, we're safe. And Jesus lives forever. So we're safe. There is no blood debt owed. No one can claim a debt over you. When the accuser says, but you did this, this, and this, You can look at him and say, It doesn't matter. You can look at him and say, I have gone to the city of refuge, and Jesus Christ has been my high priest, and he has rescued me, and I am his, and there is no condemnation for me, for I am in Christ Jesus. Oh, what joy it is to, to remember the forgiveness of Christ in those dark moments of the soul. When you look in the mirror and you see your heart. And you go, I blew it again. And then you remember, my high priest lives forever. He lives forever. And there is no blood debt owed by me. What joy it is to see him pass over our sins. What joy Melchizedek is like Christ. I want to be clear, the author of Hebrews is not saying Melchizedek is Jesus. He's saying he's like Christ, he resembles Christ. Uh, There's a lot of speculation as to who Melchizedek was. So real quickly, I'm going to rattle off the three main uh, speculations. Melchizedek, one, was a king in the Old Testament who ruled over a city, Salem, which was probably uh, the ancient site of Jerusalem. That's one. Two, Melchizedek is the man of God. Uh, Throughout scripture you see the man of God show up, and it's just a man who is ambiguously described, who's described very loosely to point you to Jesus. That's two. Three, Melchizedek is a Christophany. Jesus Christ showing up in the flesh in the Old Testament. That's another one. You see that a couple times um, in the Old Testament. For example, when Daniel and his buddies are thrown, or Daniel's buddies are thrown into the uh, fiery furnace, and there's a fourth guy walking around in there with them. They're walking in a circle, evidently. I don't know why you do that in a fiery furnace, but they're walking in a circle. And you see he has the resemblance of the Son of Man. That's obviously Jesus Christ showing up in the Old Testament, walking around with those three guys in the fiery furnace. So, uh, it could be any one of those three. The Bible doesn't tell us which means that it's not important for you to labor over. But I felt like you ought to know those are the three main ideas, Uh, just because it says here, right here, that he resembles the Son of God and that he continues as a priest forever. Melchizedek, the point of Melchizedek is that you would look at him and go, Jesus is incredible. Indeed, isn't that the point of all of us? That people would look at you and go, Jesus is incredible. Isn't that the point of everything we do? That people would look at us and go, Jesus is amazing. Whether Melchizedek is Jesus, is the man of God, or is just some random king in the Old Testament that gets three verses of the Bible because he's cool. Whatever it is, you look at him and you go, Jesus is amazing. And that's what I want people to see when they look at me. When they look at you. When they look at us. When they see this church. When they see who you are. When your neighbors see you. When your coworkers see you. I want them to look at you and go, Jesus, I don't know about them, they're a little weird, but Jesus, their God is amazing. That's what we want. Indeed, that's what we want. That's who we are. We want people to see us and go, I don't know about him, but his God is pretty incredible. That's what we want. So then we go verses 4 through 10, and you've got this first one. Melchizedek is the righteous king of peace, points you straight to Jesus. Second, we've got this illustration here. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Again, a tenth is a great place to start. Giving. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So he says first, Levi, then the priestly line of Levi, has a commandment in the law, take tithes and offerings from the people of Israel, from the children of Abraham. Go get them. Take the tithes and offerings. Remember, that's 33 and a third percent. Or thereabouts. It's really more like 33.4. But still, it's 33 and a third percent that goes to the Levitical priest and then it gets divvied out into different areas. So they are told to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, Who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. So the question that comes up in the book of Hebrews is Abraham is the great patriarch. He's the great patriarch. So if Abraham is the great patriarch and he gave tithes to Melchizedek, what does that say about Melchizedek? Greater. That's what. It, just in case you missed it, it's greater, right? That's what it says, greater. That if Abraham gives tithes and offerings to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham. Not only that, but Melchizedek is not subservient to Abraham, being that he is not from that lineage. He is not from Abraham. He's not from underneath Abraham. He is above him. He is king he is king. So Abraham pays him a tithe. Levi is commanded to receive the same tithe from the people. But Melchizedek is not bound by descent or tribal affiliation here. In verse uh, 7, it says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's Levi. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's Levi. But in, an, in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One is received by mortal men. One is received by God. One who lives eternally. Now, Melchizedek is a priest with no lineage, no beginning or end. Jesus Christ is a priest, no beginning beginning or end. He is eternal. He lives. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham. So now we get into this idea of federal headship. Now, uh, this is a theological term so if you don't know it, write it down. You need to learn this term. Federal head. And I say that you need to learn this term because it has to do with your condition as a human being. Levi had a federal head or representative at the beginning of his life. Before he's born, he comes from the lineage of Abraham. Abraham is his representative, right? So Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. So Levi, through Abraham, is bound to pay tithes to Melchizedek. And through Abraham's actions, Melchizedek's priesthood is set above Levi's priesthood. This comes into play very severely for you. With Adam. Adam is our federal head, and Adam sent all men sin. This is the same concept done with Abraham. And Abraham, the Levitical priest, is under his headship. So that priest has his model in Abraham who hands over tithe. Now, is Abraham God? Now, more confidence? Is Abraham God? No. no. Is Abraham able to save Levi? No. 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 Is Abraham able to rescue Levi from all his sins? No. He is able to do one thing, and that is to put Levi into the lineage of Abraham. And he's not really able to do that, it just kind of happens. right? Levi is Abraham's lineage, and so he has a federal head in Abraham. Abraham is under Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham the superior, blessing the inferior. Likewise, Levi is not able to be above Melchizedek. Melchizedek is above Levi, just as he was above Abraham. Jesus is above the priesthood, just as he was above Abraham. You follow? So, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Levi is mortal, Melchizedek is eternal, and Levi's offerings are held in the federal headship of Abraham. But Melchizedek, verse 10, needs no federal head, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Melchizedek meets Abraham and Levi is still not even born. Melchizedek is so great that he does not need a federal head. He does not need a head. He is the head. That's the point here. So Levi stands representative of Abraham's tenth tithe being given, representative of that being given back to God, and everybody follows suit with Abraham. Melchizedek need not follow suit. You understand he is not subservient to the law. He is not under the law. He is the king of justice. He is over the law. He makes it. Verse 11 through 14. Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? By the works of the law, no man will be saved. By the works of the law, no man will be saved. You will not be rescued from sin and death by obeying the law. You cannot be. Indeed, a sacrifice lasts for a time, but then it has to be redone. It's a cycle over and over and over. The priests would come every day to offer sacrifice. Every day. One day a year they'd offer atonement for the people. One day a year and every day they had to do sacrifices of all kinds. If you went to the temple and you were hoping to be clean because you were obeying the law, you would walk in and you would bring a sacrifice as a part of obedience to the law. you understand a sacrifice had to be made as a part of obedience to the law of God? That's God's way of saying the sacrifice is not going to work permanently. Your two turtle doves, your sheep, your, your bull, whatever you brought to have slaughtered and laid out on the altar. Your money, your crops that you had brought to the kings, to the, to the taxes, your offerings to the temple. Your money you put in the giant gong-like symbols that you put in there and it goes plang and makes a big loud noise because you put so much in. And the poor widow's mite puts the law this This constant offering was constantly turning around on itself. And no matter how bright the fire of religion burned, it couldn't save you. No matter how bright the fire of religion burned, no matter how white your knuckles got holding on to obedience to the law, it couldn't save you. It still won't save you. We don't do righteousness because we want to be righteous. We do what is righteous because he's made us righteous. And the white knuckles no longer matter. Grabbing hold of the law to try and be perfect is a flawed idea. You can't be. And yet, Jesus Christ comes before us and is perfect on our behalf. Lives a perfect life and dies on our behalf. Sacrifice once and for all. It's done. He has rescued. Verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Remember, we are those who run to the city of refuge. Numbers 35. We have run to the city of refuge seeking salvation. And that city is safe as long as the high priest lives. If you were in the Old Testament and you ran to a city of refuge, let's say you committed some sort of sin against another brother, let's say you hit somebody with your car and they died. Got out you ran to a city of refuge and you stayed inside that city. As long as you were in that city and the high priest lived, the family of that guy could not exact punishment on you. You would be safe as long as the high priest lived. High priest would eventually die, and then you'd have to submit to that authority, to that law. You'd have to go out and submit to whatever that was going to happen, whatever arbitration was going to happen. Often it ended in death. Now, for us, we run to the city of refuge, and our high priest doesn't die. He doesn't die. So there's no blood oath owed by us. There's no death owed to us. We don't. We live, and we stay safe in His arms. Sin no longer has dominion over you, but you have been free in Christ Jesus and rescued from sin. The Levitical priesthood was a constant cycle in and, on, in and of itself. But in in verses 11-14, through we have a king who is no longer subject to those things. Verse 13, For one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe. So Levi belonged to the tribe of Levi. All the priests belonged to to the tribe of Levi. The Levitical priest from Aaron. But this one, Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So I I take it most of you know Jesus was born of what tribe? Judah, the kingly tribe. He was born of the king's tribe, not of the priest's tribe. There are no laws in the book of Moses about the king serving as priest. There are no laws regulating Jesus in the book of Moses. Why? Why? Because he is the king of the law. He's king over the law. There are no laws regulating Jesus. He gets to do what he wants. And if Jesus looks at you and says, I want to forgive you, you understand no law can stand in his way. Because he's king over the law. He's king over the law. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. There is no law regulating Jesus' kindness to you. There is no law regulating His authority over you. He is king, and He is king over all things, and He is king over you. He is king over everything. The Levitical priesthood was imperfect, it was dependent on the law, and it was temporary. It was only there as long as that priest was alive. Jesus, on the other hand, is perfect. He transcends the law. He's over the law and beyond it. And He is eternal. So He will never die. This is your great high priest. Jesus is greater than the priest. Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system. Jesus is greater.